0: With your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biede.
1: You know, through the years there have been efforts to reform ufology. And it sadly needs reforming, as many of you know. Many of you have listened to the show, realize what we all feel about it, that UFO investigation is in a bad state. Now, years ago, we tried to hold... An actual convention for scientific ufology called the congress of scientific ufologists this was somewhere in the 1960s and i was very very young then by the way i'm not as old as i sound and we held this event eventually it became the national ufo conference and we made jim mosley the permanent chairman he's no longer permanent chairman he's chairman emeritus or he's left or something like that but It didn't really have the traction that we thought it would have. Over the years, there have been a number of UFO organizations that I think wanted to be the center for research. Certainly NICAP did, although NICAP largely emphasized trying to get congressional hearings. I think APRO in the 60s and 70s did. They concentrated a lot on South American sightings, close encounters, alleged artifacts from UFOs. Then, of course, we had the Center for UFO Studies, the Dr. Hynek Organization. I don't hear too much about them anymore, though, so I don't know what they're doing. And then, of course, we have the Mutual UFO Network, which has been around for many, many years, but doesn't seem to have accomplished anything in terms of true research. In fact, a recent copy of their magazine, they were talking about Lloyd Pye and his star child. And David and I had a couple of yucks about that on the show. I'm not attacking MUFON's intentions, by the way. I am a card-carrying member of MUFON, okay? I admit that freely and completely, a card-carrying member. So today on the Powercast, David and I have three guests. Not two, three guests. We have Mac Tonys, of course, and he's going to stand up and take a bow. Mac? Hello there, everybody. Okay. Okay, of course, we have Jeff Ritzman.
2: Take a drink, everybody, right now.
1: Okay, Jeff's (laughs) going to take a drink. And we have a new guest on the show, someone who hasn't joined us before and has some interesting ideas to present and was notified about this the last possible moment, and he's been a real trooper. Despite that, Daniel Branton, say hello. Hello,
3: thanks for having me on, Gene. I really appreciate
1: it. Daniel, you sent me a proposal that was going to be a blog entry eventually, where you felt this was a way to reform ufology, to provide peer review, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe in the next couple of minutes, you can address a few of the key points of that, and then we could feed it to our guests and see how they react to it. How about that? Sure. Okay.
3: I recognize a lot of people have probably tried to do something like this, but what my intent was to start the discussion, because this is something that has to be done. I think everybody here is in agreement that ufology is in a very sorry state. And something has to be done in order to move forward. We've got all kinds of factors we need to deal with. It's the nature of the UFO community itself, the problem of infighting, egos, all that kind of stuff. And that's just in our own house, let alone anything that's going on outside. But what we should do first, I feel, is to establish a way of dealing with what's going on in our house. Now, what occurred to me, and there's been often, I'm sure there's been a lot of organizations that started with ideas like this, but what occurred to me is perhaps creating an organization where there is a code or set of covenants by which everybody involved would have to abide. And the, this code, now, I haven't flushed out all of this by any means, and it would be inappropriate for me to do so because, I I'm, frankly, I'm fairly inexperienced to trying to manage people in this kind of area. But the object would be to establish... They, if any kind of research is done under the auspices of the organization, it would have to hold up to whatever the appropriate methodologies are for that kind of research, that if people are going to make claims about something, they have to be able to present proof of those things. They have to be verifiable. If anything scientific done, of course, it has to meet scientific methods, That it has to be repeatable and so on. And I, I suspect there would be covenants where there would be kind of a due process. If there's some kind of issue brought up, it'll be brought up in, in, a, in an orderly manner, so which can be reviewed properly. The, the object, though, would be to create an organization that would be the go-to source for not just the community, but for the media. An organization like this, it seems to me, would be able to put together, assuming, of course, we have enough resources, put together um, positions or policies concerning other work. For instance, well, I'm going to say it. I don't think a lot of Stephen Greer's work. Now that's just an opinion, I couldn't just come out and say I've got an opinion on this. Say, say if I was looking at somebody's work in particular, and I'd have to ask the question, can, can I believe this or not? Is, is this material, uh, is there any way to verify this material? These claims have been made here, these claims have been made here, is there anything to support that? And say if uh, whoever this person might be is making these wild claims or, or doing something like that in the media and has gotten a lot of attention, at very least, the organization would have some kind of statement regarding that. We don't feel that this is ver- verifiable, therefore we don't give it much credence, that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, to try to be objective about it, to approach it in, uh, in a level way. And that way, making ourselves a, a stable source that uh, various medias and media outlets and such could come to. I see two different levels, not levels, I guess, excuse me, definitely not levels, but two different kinds of members to this group. You would have researchers. The researchers would be not just the hard sciences, but also, if you will, the soft sciences. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the work of Dr. Kenneth Ray, excellent psychologist. He did some groundbreaking stuff when it came to trying to quantify abduction experiences. And of course everybody started John Mack. We'd have the heart and the sciences side of the research, but then we'd also have the the history and the context of it. People like Richard Dolan, for instance. Then we would have the I guess the I guess I think of them as associate members. These are people that don't necessarily have a, a degree or some kind of demonstrated competency in some and some skill, but want to contribute. And they can contribute in a number of ways. Of course, I mean, dues, we got to have money to drive the thing, however the organization shapes up. And, of course, there's other talents, uh, being the media contacts, taking care of things like that. Also, actually taking care of the health of the organization itself, keeping things going. I'm thinking in terms of uh, Jeremy Vaney's success with his Culture of Contact event. He got some very good press, and it sounded like everybody had a really good time, and I think possibly the media picked up on that, and because of that, they didn't turn into a laughing stock. They actually worked with the army and, and took it in, and gave him some, I gave him a fair hearing. I think that's the broad outlines of it, and so maybe I should just sit back and see what your people have to think. Well,
4: here is the thing, Daniel. I, I think at a certainly at a base level, your heart's in the right place. I think your intentions are are good. Here is the situation we're talking about. For example, a topic where. The notion of objectivity is very difficult, and this is something that uh, I know personally. I've I've wrangled with this, in that when we talk about research, when we talk about applying the scientific method, certainly for certain types of UFO situations and encounters, one could apply some measure of that. But for the most part, certainly in extended conversations with with Jeff about this topic, it really does feel like. Uh, the deeper meaning of what this is about appears to be playing out at a very personal, subjective level. And uh, so I'm wondering if it's even possible to quantify this phenomenon in an objective way and if by setting that as the goal, you're not immediately setting yourself up for failure.
3: I hear what you're saying, and I think... and I, In fact, I agree with you very much, so I think... Uh, Especially big experiences like paranormal things; these uh, mm-hmm. these are very personal. They have to be. I, I think we're foolish when we don't look at it at them in that manner. This is part of our existence, part of the play of our lives, and what all this stuff means, and, I mean, to us personally and, and our relationship with our own existences. What I'm thinking about in that sort of regard is in uh, in Dr. Kenneth Ring's book, uh, The Omega Project.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: He uh, put together a battery of uh, Battery of questions and had enough uh, people to ask these questions of. He had a big enough sample that he could garner some information from actually working with these folks, taking that and, and looking it over. There are scientific methods that can be applied even in uh, the area of psychiatry. What's really good is that Dr. Ring was willing to think out of the box and even look at this.
4: Sure. Now, at the same time, psychiatry is a recognized scientific endeavor. We have a fairly good—I won't say a complete understanding of the human mind. Certainly, we're probably fairly far from that. But human motivation seems to be something that is, I think, for the most part, pretty clear. At least that's—that's—that's the way it appears. You know, you—you you go to a psychiatrist or psychologist, and there are uh, methodologies that are applied to study specific types of emotional aberrations or personality uh, flaws. And there are methods that have been tried and tested to to correct or perhaps even just potentially uh, assist people who have emotional problems, live somewhat normal lives. I think it might be much more difficult to approach the idea of the understanding of a phenomenon that really at this point, and I'm, I'm curious to know what Mac thinks about this because every time I hear the term aliens used or extraterrestrials, I have to say, Mac, I always think of you because, as I've said on the show now, having spoken with you on on the Paracast and also having read the little bits of the work that you're doing right now on your book about um, your expansion of uh, the crypto-terrestrial theory, on an intuitive level, I I really think you're on to something. And given that that's the case, that you might very well be on something, do you ever see a situation where your peers are going to look at your work and and give it the kind of attention it requires, given that it flies in the face of so much vested interest that already exists.
5: No, actually I don't, and not because I, I look down at the work I'm doing, but because I think the phenomenon is inherently so flexible that it's going to continue to elit us. I like uh, Daniel's ideas. By the way, about I think the way, if I were to do that, I would uh, put some emphasis on some sort of a, uh, rather expansive web presence, some sort of portal. And uh, there were proposals to do this with uh, space exploration-related type issues, uh, going back to like Joe Fermage and Andrew and Project Voyager, for example. And mm-hmm. I was kind of, I was kind of thinking along. Lines like that. As far as the phenomenon itself is concerned, it's so you know just incredibly slippery that Mm -hmm. I have to wonder if the human mind is 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 capable of it. We you know we we assume casually that that the human nervous system is can resolve any uh, apparent paradox or, or problem that it can ultimately get to get to the bottom of it. But we don 't question the instrument enough, I, and I have to wonder if if our minds our perceptual acumen as it currently exists and may always exist to some extent is enough if we have the proper instrumentation if it 's even within our, within our bounds. you know it could be that we 're hardwired by our evolution on this on this planet uh, to see things in a in a certain way, not a necessarily invalid way, but in a, uh, a necessarily limited sense. So the subjectivity that you deal with again and again in the UFO field, littered with you know paranormal experiences and synchronicity, and things like that. And uh, frankly, my own little terrestrial idea is as interesting as I, as I think it might be, and as as enjoyable as it is to work with. You know, I'm afraid it doesn't have all the answers there. Uh, nevertheless, I present it as a as a a working. Idea, a hypothesis. Whether it passes muster is, you know, something to answer your question. I have no idea.
1: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast.
6: Hi, Gene, Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer, because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 19.99 just for you
1: how do we take advantage of this offer
6: there are three ways to take advantage of it one is if you're online go to www.ufomag.com hit subscribe when you come to the paypal page just put in under item powercast offer 1995 and i will know that you get six issues for the price of five or you could send your check or money order to ufo magazine post office box one one zero one three Marina del Rey, California, that's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995 or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242 leave me a message I will call you back or if I'm in the office I'll pick up and just say hi I'm a friend of Gene's and Dave's I listen to the Paracast here's my special offer and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five and that's how you do it Gene and I love to hear from our listeners
4: if you'd like to share your thoughts with us Send your messages to news at That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will
0: too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: We are on the podcast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We have three guests today, a newcomer to the show, Daniel Brenton, who's been active on our forums and has some interesting ideas of where the UFO field might go in the future to kind of remedy all the rampant problems. Mac Tonys, of course, who's brought out the crypto terrestrial theory and has some incredible thoughts about UFOs and about areas that we haven't explored and that we should be exploring. And Of course, Jeff Ritzman our friend, and occasionally he's been my co-host when David hasn't been available. Jeff, let me ask you, do you have a comment about this whole idea that Daniel has voiced?
2: Again, it's, I, I can echo what everybody said so far, that, that it sounds like a great idea to organize and, and to get things more in line and more in some sort of direction. But I think probably over the past 20 years I've seen some huge changes come over. the. I, I mean, I don't even know if I can call it a community or not, it seems m- more like it's a, I mean, I always call it the paranormal gangbang because it's like everybody believes something different. Everybody's got a vested interest in what they believe and and they're sure they're right, more along the lines of the brass ring type of thing that, that seems to come along to everybody where everybody wants to grab the brass ring. And I think Daniel had mentioned the, the whole ego-ridden part of this thing that, that ultimately takes over every group that I've ever come across, and I've started three myself that um, have not been successful in staying together for any real length of time. I think if you look at a group like Mufon, which you brought up at the beginning of the show, a group like that is great from an outside point of view. Once you really get into them, and David's even expressed this to me in certain at certain times when he's gone to meetings up in New York versus the meetings mm. that I have gone to in Maryland. Here in Maryland. We've got a great branch, uh, probably not more than 25 minutes from my home that I used to go to pretty regularly although I was never a, a member I didn't ever want to be a member of of any group but they're very they're very curious bunch most of them are pretty grounded like most situations that you run into in this you do find the fringe element as I call it that you know subscribes to the really airy fairy stuff that, That you know in your heart of hearts, and and many people have already exposed, I'm not going to bring up any of these trashy cases, but we all know what they are, that believe hardcore in those and anything that you say for or against those are are ignored. I see them basically splinter into these click-type groups, even within a single group like here in Maryland. And unfortunately I think that's like a that's the microcosm of what you run into in bigger groups. Everything splinters because everyone has their own ideas about what they think is going on, that they have more evidence to prove this than anyone else, and that's the direction that they're going to lead to. Getting like-minded individuals together, unfortunately, I don't know is going to get you any further. It may be a more serious Visually, to the public, it may look more serious, it may look more organized, but is it really? Uh, Is it really going to make any hurdles? Are we going to go in new and different directions? Considering that most of the field, I mean, let's admit it, most of this field, quote-unquote, you know, considers this to be an extraterrestrial source. I mean, there's so many people that are so hardcore invested in that that I don't think you're going to get a great many people to look into things like Multi-dimensional, or that they could be from under the ocean, or that they could be from in the ground, or whatever. I think you've got people that this is what they believe, this is what they know to be true, and anything that you put in front of them and say, "Look, this is your, this is your piece to work on. Here's your piece of the puzzle. See what you can find out about this." I think you're going to get half-hearted, you know, efforts because they think it's a, this is worthless. They're from Planet X, you know. Why am I looking, you know? At the history of the ocean, why am I looking at sightings surrounded by water? You know that kind of thing, and by the same token, you could get people out there who say this whole dimensional thing, where do I go with that? We had that on the message board. you know where do we yeah, go with yeah. that and it 's unfortunate that people don 't want to look outside of UFO studies of reading books and and all this about which has already been written from a certain point of view let 's step outside of this we 're telling everybody you can 't think outside the box. Yet I think the majority of the community doesn't want to get out of its own box and take a look at things like, you know, um, whether it be the nature of what spirituality means—a collective unconscious or a, you know, uh, or, or anything else that might give us a little bit of hint of what's going on here. And I think there's been recently some some interesting things that Daniel and I and Jeremy have been talking about that that points in a certain direction. But is it right? We don't know if it's right or not. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of people who would want to talk about it. So it's just it's a big mixing pot, and a lot of people have a lot of different views, and they're very attached to those views.
1: So putting the people together, Jeff, is going to be very Mm -hmm. difficult. What I see, just having traveled through the field for so many years, the problem I see is that I think a number of groups started with great intentions. Now, NICAP, I think, was meant from almost the beginning when Major Donald Kehoe became part of it as a lobbying organization. I think the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and the Lorenzans intended to be a serious research body. I think MUFON has gone into this with great intentions. In fact, they have training manuals to train people to be investigators on proper investigative techniques. Again, sincere efforts, but again, nothing has come of it. And right. what has the Center for UFL Studies done lately? I haven't heard much about them. Let's let's
4: go for a moment to the meta view of this, because okay, sure. I think what's, what's happening is that we're getting into that murky, murky area of politics. And really what we're describing is that humans are political creatures. And the minute you have three humans, you've got one that becomes the alpha, and then everybody else sort of leads along. And you know, does that really serve the purposes of inquiry? Well, maybe not. But something that Mac brings up that I think is really the, the important point here is the idea that our brains are, are I don't want to say designed I was almost said the way our brains are designed and that oh my god I, <laughs> I realized the Pandora's box I was going to open with that oh, one intelligent design oh no oh no <laughs> but it seems that certainly the way our brains interpret reality and um, the way that our brains present reality to us maybe that wiring and the architecture of that wiring is such that ultimately humans require belief in order to function and that perhaps in the context of the way that our brains interpret the world it's almost as if belief becomes more important than understanding and and that being the case really what we're talking about when we have people who are guarding their positions and their vested interests in terms of explaining, for example, just any aspect of the paranormal UFOs being the focus tonight. But I think this holds true for discussing any aspect of, you know, what is the paranormal nature of fill in the blank. What ends up happening is that people don't really seem to want to move towards a useful answer. Instead, what they want to do is they want reaffirmation of their own intuitions or suspicions. And is there any way for us to pull out of that uh, catch twenty-two,
1: or is that simply not possible given the way that our brains seem to work? Well, of course, we could also look at the issue above that, which is why are we hardwired that way? Did some outside force? Is it God? Is it the space people seeding us? Is it crypto-terrestrials who are monitoring our progress, who hardwired us that way? And is there are a way all, to overcome it? Are all those
4: three things? Are those three things all the same thing? Perhaps, perhaps. What do you think they mutually exclusive I and mean, probably
5: probably not one thing I'll throw out I'll throw out there because it, it seems it seems relevant is that when we're addressing the UFO phenomenon we're also addressing a whole spectrum of other related uh, anomalous behavior and mm-hmm. uh, it's possible that that one of the purposes, one of the NOs of this, of this intelligence, and I can't help but feel that there is an intelligence at work. In fact, uh, I, once I wrote, sat down and wrote, you know, two things that I feel comfortable attributing, or not attributing, but, uh, suggesting as fact for the, of a phenomenon. And one of them was that we're dealing with a physical phenomenon, something that can interact with us on a physical level. In other words, it's not all mental aberration, and secondly, it seems to be uh, governed by some sort of intelligence. So, given that, uh, we're left to to envision the phenomenon based on its on its manifestations. And I think one of the ways in which this intelligence, hypothetical intelligence, operates is by influencing human belief. And I know Jacques Vallée has done some interesting work with that. If that is so, then you could make an argument, probably a kind of an elliptical one, that you're studying the phenomenon itself by studying its effects on human belief. So therefore, when you have all these different uh, splinter, splinter factions of uh, various agendas and various perspectives on, on what's happening, you know, whether it's ETs, whether it's this, whether it's that, uh, you are, in fact, studying the phenomenon itself on a, on a sociological level. So it becomes kind of like the parable about the blind men and the elephant, that in which case we're actually, we actually are by observing this, uh, this fractured terrain that is, that is the UFO quote unquote community. And uh, I agree with Jeff that it's not a community at all. It's probably the last term I'd use. But by studying this, you are indeed studying the the core phenomenon, not all of it, uh, but you're studying possibly a very important Aspect of it, if it's if one of its intentions is to influence how we believe and what and uh, and, uh, what we believe in.
7: That's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5.
4: Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself free for 30 days. Just visit go to forward slash tech podcasts. That's go to meeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try go meeting free today.
6: You're a little with Jesus. I David
1: Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, Daniel Brenton, Jeff Ritzman, Mac Tony's with us. Daniel, what are your feelings so far about what you've heard?
3: Well, I appreciate the discussion. I think I agree with all of it. I honestly feel like, feel like I need to kind of rein things back a little bit. Research is going to have to be something that is is verifiable. And so I think I'm going to get right down to it, really understanding the mechanisms of things like this it's really pretty dull not sexy at all you have to say okay is this going to work is this a repeatable kind of thing and so on it's it's the it's the rigor of science for instance well for for example I mean Dr. McAfee for instance he, he's able to determine things about objects by their optical qualities and they, there are facts about these things that can be observed now Obviously, the phenomenon is repeatable. It's always changing shape and so on. It's always doing different things. But I think in order to get anywhere in terms of what this thing is or, if nothing else, what it isn't, to find the ways of, of measuring it and make determinations as to what, what the results are, we can get into all kinds of speculation. And some of that speculation may get us somewhere, uh, if nothing else, to form hypotheses to test. But to really work through the process, I think we have to find those, those things that we can test and verify.
4: Well, when you say finding something to test, I mean, the problem is, what are we talking about here? I, I think, as Mac pointed out, one of the things that we can say with some degree of certainty is that this is a physical phenomenon, that this is something that is not uh, an issue of perception. It's not everybody having a big consensual, consensual hallucination. Though certainly there are people who think that that is the case, um, I don't think that is the case. But after you, you cover the, that base, it keeps bringing me back to the cultural conditioning problem with this whole topic. The media treats it as a joke. It's always talked about with, ha ha, look at that. One of our listeners has sent me and Gene a, um, a clip from CNN where there was discussion of the press conference any number of weeks ago that Fife uh, Symington and James Fox put on, which was, I thought, the most coherent press conference of its type so far. I mean, here you had ex-military people talking very definitively and very soberly about what they had witnessed. And uh, you had the, the CNN gal say, gee, uh, I think they're all freaks. And she said this with a giggle in her voice. And this is CNN. So the problem is when you have that kind of cultural conditioning, and then also, you know, the vast number of movies and that have dealt with this topic in, in, a, in an entertainment context and framework, which is unfortunately all that most of our species seems really capable of. We're very good at entertaining ourselves and killing ourselves. <laughs> this, ultimately, you look at this, this is not a good situation. So I'm not trying to be the the downer Dave here, but it just seems to me that there is so much ingrained behavior at play here that to try to lift one's head up and say, okay, now we're going to gather a group of people. And Daniel, I'm not trying to, to downplay what you're saying. I think certainly there is force in numbers. There's no question about that. I think that's always true, and, and certainly one could look at the political history of the United States and realize that that's the case. But with that in mind... As we said here tonight, is it a situation where you can do the the double header of, okay, we're going to clean the situation up within the group of people who are interested in this, and then we're going to get the world at large to pay attention to this, when at the current moment in history, what we're looking at is a whole variety of elements that seem to point to a rather, I think, terrifying global meltdown Is there going to be bandwidth available to deal with this topic at any level, or are we we whistling in the wind?
3: There's obviously, it would be an enormous task to do this. Mm -hmm. And frankly, why I started this was to start the discussion. Right. Uh, I I mean, I don't have all the details on how this should function. I'm sure there'll be people, well, like Paul Kimball has a legal background. He'd probably be able to throw out half a dozen things that I ought to be thinking about. In fact, I've sent out inquiries to a number of people, including him, as to their, their take on this. It's going to take years to change the public perception. But what's more important is there has to be a unified group of people, people that are willing to buy into the same frame of reference—not about the phenomenon, but okay, I'm going to adhere to this kind of behavior, and I'm, if I'm going to do research. Then it has to be verifiable under the accepted methodologies, and so on. We can't change the community. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that we create a group. That becomes an influence in the community that becomes kind of the, the quiet center of the storm kind and of the nj-12 <laughs> i'm sorry oh,
5: i just, I, mean, I meant that in a nice way the control right the, my head and oversight actually, committee i meant that oh. in, in a good sense i know i know what you mean and actually i, I agree with that i'd be willing to plunk down a few bucks or membership in, in such an organization out of curiosity as much as anything else. But, I mean, you you look at the subscription services on the net, if you constructed some sort of um, kind of meta-community like this and you elevated yourself by virtue of of Hmm. the quality of the research you had and, and experts... Real experts uh, that you could you could draw on for for interesting opinions. Uh, I think you I think you might have something It's not going to be an overnight fix by any means. But I don't think you, you intended that intended to be an overnight fix. And uh, yeah, I mean, for, for my money, I would put my money where my mouth is and actually. Uh, depending on how much how much we're talking about but for an annual membership yeah yeah I think I, I think I think I would I'd have to see you know a little bit before I before I did it just like anything else I'd have to weigh the product but uh, as you put it so far I mean you're not trying to uh, rope in everyone who's interested in UFOs you're simply trying to create kind of a not an, not an oversight committee, I was joking about that, but kind of just a little core, just kind of an island, a little island of stability in this, in this uh, you know, rather noisy, chaotic uh, fugue that is the UFO scene. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, at least a possibility that deserves some serious
4: attention. How you'd go about it would be the interesting logistical problem. Yeah, would
3: be. Well, again, I don't have all the answers, but I wanted to start the questions up.
4: Again, Daniel, I think your idea is valid. From a, from a theoretical point of view, I think it has merit. One of the things I'd throw out there for consideration is that if we're talking about paranormal phenomena that can be measured, can be captured with instrumentation, I would say that you might have more of a chance of creating this with the idea of the study of sort of a larger arena of paranormal Entities And what I'm specifically thinking about, you look at the amount of interest right now being thrown at, um, I don't want to say spiritism, but basically that's what it comes down to. There seems to be right now a real media wave of shows that deal with ghost hunting, for example. Something that uh, where people can actually gather things like video evidence, uh, EVPs. And, and of course, you'll find that there are a number of people who... Will debate the veracity of the EVP as a, a scientific tool, but um, some of the stuff that I've uh, that I've heard has you know really been astounding. There is some video evidence of um, of ghostly apparitions and and entities that I think is highly compelling. So you look at the the combination of the type of information that has been captured in the study of ghost phenomenon and hauntings, this huge huge amount of stuff that not only exists but that has been documented over time. We had on um, a fellow, uh, really f- fantastic writer, Joe Citro, who um, has written extensively about a very, very fascinating, I don't want to call it a ghost situation, it was actually much more complicated than that, it was a, a thing that happened back in uh, Vermont. In I'm going to tell you, it was the 18 uh, the 1870s in a town called Chittenden, where these two brothers were these mediums that um, were having a sick, crazy amount of paranormal activity in this uh, house that they had with their sister, and there was this uh, really fascinating character by the name of Henry Steele Alcott. Who, um, there's a, this is just an absolutely fascinating case. He went up and spent 10 weeks with with these two brothers documenting this case, and he wrote a book, really amazing book called People from the Other World, which, by the way, this book is available in its entirety on Google Books, all 400 and some odd pages of it. You can go read this, and this has to be one of the most insanely strange. And I think compelling, haunting cases of all time. And this guy uh, Olcott was not just anybody. This was uh, somebody who had gained reputation as a lawyer, as a scientist, as an investigator. It's a very serious guy, and uh, he went up and, and documented this situation. Which again, the, the the level of what was going on, where you had the, one of these brothers sitting in a in a little cabinet, and out of this cabinet would come. 20, 30 people completely, uh, looking completely different. I mean, the spirits of Native Americans and Europeans and pilgrims are coming out of this box. And they're interacting with people. These were full body apparitions that were materializing and dematerializing in front of people. This, there's extensive documentation about this case. So you look at something like that, and there is no equivalent in the UFO field to a case like the Chittenden situation there's nothing so I mean taking that into account does it make more sense perhaps to create an organization or an effort that is not completely focused on the UFO phenomenon but instead tries to take the overall meta view of the paranormal and potentially and this is something that G- Jeff and I have spoken about at length potentially come to some understanding that there is a possibility that all of these phenomena have some relation to one another, as far as how they are affected by and how they possibly affect human perception.
3: Oh, certainly no argument. At one point, I was thinking maybe this should be about uh, fourteen phenomena, mm-hmm. as just a way of you know think, grabbing everything we possibly could. I sort of pulled back and went, "Well, why don't we just focus on UFOs?" But again, I'm just starting the discussion. Sure, I, I feel all the stuff is interrelated personally, yet there would be the task of trying to find a way of substantiating that, of having a a viable model, or for that matter if you really think, even think in terms of models when you get into that sort of thing but I I think you hear what I'm saying
5: Mm -hmm. I agree with Jeff I think uh, think the very The very fact that we have the term UFO is a conditioning uh, artifact. Uh, It places uh, some pretty strict criteria on on what a UFO is. It, It helps define this concept for us, and the problem is that it's something that's not... UFO enough, it falls off the radar. And, uh, for example, you know, interesting, interesting atmospheric effects. I mean, that, that could have something to do with, with this enigma. The electromagnetic phenomena of various sorts. You know, especially in a world that's building more and more, um, the sources of being in pollution. Could very well be that something like that could have a a very catastrophic effect on the human brain in the long run and that we're witnessing some sort of collective hallucination in some in a rather more contemporary sense than what the usual debunkers would have us believe. So there are all kinds of interesting possibilities like that. So, yeah, to focus an organization on strictly UFOs or strictly, quote-unquote, ghosts or spirit phenomena or whatever, uh, I think would be a mistake. I think you'd have to, by necessity, you'd have to include scientific anomalies in general. I mean, it's like, I'm trying to think of a, a good analogy in like particle physics or something like that, uh, where you, you never focus on just one little thing. You kind of have an, an envelope where you're willing to, willing to look at research. Even if you're not conducting it yourself, you're willing to look, look at the findings of other, of other people in related disciplines because everyone, you know, on some level knows that there's going to be uh, some cor- interesting correlations that's going to lead to new models and new ways of looking at the universe. So there was to be such an organization, they have to be Pretty all inclusive, and of course that uh, that places a, a huge uh, impediment on, on bandwidth because uh, you're going to have to have lots of people involved in in something like this to make it to make it a coherent organization to make it something that's going to actually produce produce answers on occasion.
1: Hey, listeners! Did you know that Fate is the oldest and best known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 Two seven three zero, or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's one eight hundred seven two eight two seven three zero, or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
0: You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop conspiracies and secret societies. The complete dossier. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the paracast.
1: In the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Mac Tonies Jeff Ritzman, Daniel Brenton. We're starting off with a new framework, perhaps, for future UFO research. What then about the 40-in approach, where we take into account a large number of different mysteries? around our planet and we try to find meaning behind all of them would that be a possible idea jeff we haven't heard much from you since the early part of the show you have any comments Uh,
2: i'm listening well i mean i I think one of the big things i'd like to see i mean i'm sitting here thinking what would i like to see happen in an organization that we're talking about like the, the the perfect setup and i think something that that a lot of organizations don't currently do now is look closer at the people who have the sightings, who have the experiences, who see ghosts, who hear sounds in their house we we want to study the phenomena itself, which nine times out of ten is not going on when we're investigating it. You know, when you're talking about a haunting, for instance, you may or may not come across something in a house. If you're talking about a UFO sighting ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the investigator is not going to see you know a craft at the location where the the witness saw something. He's going to go there, he's going to say, "Well, how far up was it? Where was it exactly? How big was it, you know, at the outstretched arm, so on and so forth." I think one of the things we don't pay enough attention to is the people who see these things, the people who experience these things. Who are they? What are they like? What are their likes and dislikes? What kind of What kind of mindset do they have on the phenomena before versus after? How did it affect them? I think we're we're bound to find a hell of a lot more questions and or slash answers in questioning these people a lot more thoroughly. I'm not just talking about the quality of the witness. I'm talking about that person. Who is this person? You know, I I had one investigator in the whole time working with me on, on just what I've seen, what I've experienced in my journey in this thing, and only one of them out of many, and a couple of them pretty high-end, quote-unquote high-end guys at the at that time, very few of them asked me, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, you know, are you a happy guy? Or are you not a happy guy? You know? Um, uh, how do you feel life's treating you? What do you, you know, well, you ever take an IQ test? What's your IQ? Well, I've never had that, that kind of in-depth thing, and I think if we're to learn anything about the phenomenon itself we have to look at who it affects you know and you could say well that's a broad sense of the public who might see a ufo or see a ghost but i i cannot help the similarities similarities that i found in people who had just had the the alien experience i found that a lot of people who were i mean having repeated hardcore experiences not the one-off not the wrong place right time a lot of these people were highly highly intelligent people They were also very creative people. I would say out of 100% of the people I talked to, I'd say a good 20 30% were professional artists or were hobby artists in their spare time, people who can visualize very well, who can describe something in such extreme detail out of their head. I didn't realize until I was probably 18 or 19 that a lot of people – Cannot visualize. Sit in a chair and look at the floor, a blank floor, and you know, picture a rock in the middle of the floor. A lot of people can't do that, and that to me is absurd. This is the kind of thing I'd like to explore with, with a group like this, is to to get someone in there who is maybe a psychologist and maybe someone else who is from maybe from a, a theological bent that would interview these people incredibly in depth about their views before and after, and check back with them. Not just a one-off interview and, okay, we got you. I mean, check back with these people in six months. Where are they in six months? How did this affect your, you long-term now? You know, And I mean, as far as, at least in the UFO thing, I've seen some pretty devastating results from that. Well,
1: we're saying um, then that perhaps the UFO mystery paranormal phenomena in general is part and parcel, not just of an individual separate phenomenon or phenomena, but the individuals who perceive it. If they're part of the mystery, why they're more sensitive. Maybe things are happening all the time, but you have to be in a particular state of mind or you have to be sensitive in some fashion to
2: detect it. It's there all the time. Hmm. And it could be just that. That's one of the angles I'd like to see someone approach that no one has ever really, uh, aside from a couple I can think of, has really gone in really, really hard for that. To look at how it affects people, what are these people? Who are these people? And, there have been
5: a few um, efforts, but they've been more historically driven. Like I'm thinking of like Graham Hancock's uh, Supernatural, and things like that that deal with, uh, and old Terrence McKenna as well that yeah. deal with uh, the people who've interacted with with what you know by all uh, indications seem to be some form of intelligence that, that's not uh, immediately identifiable as as human in origin, but as access to some sort of uh, drug state, and of course in our very West Western society. If you, have, if you report something well under the influence of some sort of some sort of chemical, then it, your testimony is is written off. But I don't think that's wise. It's just as it's just as conceivable to me that uh, the brain, with a certain uh, chemical at its disposal, could uh, be more prone to receiving uh, some sort of anomalous information that usually just gets washed and washed away, that usually just bypasses your normal your normal everyday circuits. I like the idea that some people could be more, simply more receptive. I think that you could probably make a pretty good case that there's, that there's a historical precedent for that among indigenous people.
1: Well, you know, the one thing that everyone seems to be raising here now is maybe UFOs can be related or paranormal phenomena in general can be related to theories about quantum physics where the observer influences what is being observed. Uh, mm.
2: Undoubtedly. <laughs> undoubtedly. I mean, We well, don't want I, to and, think and, that,
1: of course. But.
2: Now, I mean, I was talking to, um, to somebody the other day about that. It's so true. And I even told Daniel in emails just this week. I said, in, in my own experience, is that the, the more attention paid to any paranormal phenomena that you want to look at, it, it's you know I, I think I put it in the email to Daniel that it, you know it, it, wh- whatever it is it seems to turn its head in your direction you know and I find that really interesting. John you Keel know?
1: said something kind of like that years ago in one of his books. To run is an invitation to be chased. <laughs> exactly. And that if you just try to run away overtly to, from something rather than passively accept it, the more you try to get away from it, the more you attract it its presence daniel let me throw a question from left field out at you here because we don't know a lot about you yet except your co-author of a science fiction novel red moon and which has been advertised on the show and on the site and you're very very interested in all this stuff have you ever had any sightings
3: no i have not i enough, my experiences have leaned more toward toward the spiritual what i would call the spiritual uh, i have had an of body experience you know, when thinking about that, there's so many people apparently who can who have been able to train themselves to do that, it seems pretty prosaic to say, Oh, I've had one out of body experience but I have. I've had a real short one then. I have had an experience where I was in a very tough period of my life and I was really just feeling at a real dead end. And I had a light open up inside of me. After since then I've read things about near death experiences and so on. That classic tunnel of light, tunnel opening, and I, I felt like I was moving up this tunnel. It, uh, in fact, it did seem like a, a large circular tunnel, and there was almost like a bright cloudiness at the end of it. It was sort of receding from me, and I could see there was a very, very bright light behind it, and as this experience happened, I was looking at all this, perceiving all this, and I'm going, well, wait a minute, and it's stopped, and I was back you know, by normal in my room again. But I've had a few things like that through my life, that very clear message is that there is much more to our existence than most people think about.
4: Those kinds of experiences are reported by a lot of people from a lot of different cultural backgrounds. And, um, of course, here's where we run into the problem of the notion of perception, where um, someone from a scientific background will hear that and say, you know, as far as the near-death experience goes, there's been a lot of work done, to determine that potentially there are some very quantifiable physiological sources for, for these experiences and that really um, what people perceive as being a spiritual experience is really a physiological experience that is playing out in terms of being perceived by the belief system of the human and that belief system being some combination of emotional and even potentially physiological or um, uh, brain-related pathways that process reality in a way that specifically fits it into sort of a flowchart that reinforces existing mechanisms and this is where I'm coming back again to what Max said before that perhaps really what's happening here is that we are running into the limitations of what our minds can handle. I, and you know, one of one of the things that's always struck me about this is, you know, there, there are still people who will get up in front of a group of reasonably intelligent friends and say that, you know, until we have definitive proof of life elsewhere in the universe, I can't believe it because we haven't found it yet. And you know, I won't even speak to what that says about human vanity, but... If anybody looks into the sky at night, anybody anybody goes out into the country where there's not much ambient light and looks up into the sky and sees that density of stars that are in the sky and has the understanding, the actual real uh, scientific uh, understanding and, and, and sort of grounding in astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy, and looks out into that sky, I don't see how any human can can possibly conceive of this fantasy that we would be the only living beings in this entire vastness. And and part of that is simply because it seems almost like the human mind has a safety valve. And when confronted with something that it just can't understand, the safety valve kicks in and it says, quick, substitute belief in for reason And everything will be okay. And this ends up being part of the instinct for survival. What is, I think, certainly uh, the strongest instinct we have as human beings. So how do you get around that? I, I think that's really one of the key questions here. How do we move past our own limitations, limitations of our physiological reality? But at the same time, how do we sort of synthesize and differentiate what is...
1: Spirit and what is body? You know what? This is something that we'll probably pick up on the second part, but I was thinking of something when you were talking, David, and I wondered maybe the answer is not so much that we try to separate ourselves from that, but we embrace it. We basically go to the light, as they say, we embrace that difference that characteristic of us, whatever it is, and maybe that will help us understand what's going on. But maybe it requires looking into ourselves rather than externally to see what's happening. Maybe, again, we go back to theories of collective unconscious. Maybe we are seeing a mystery that's part of our life's experience. And somehow we have to come to an understanding of it within ourselves, not by external scientific research, not with cameras, not with test tubes, not with various analysis machines like they use on CSI. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to break for hour number two of the PowerCast. We'll be continuing, of course, with Mac Tony's, Jeff Ritzman, and a newcomer to our show, Daniel Brenton. Coming up on part two of the Paracast. Yeah.
7: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the a novel in the grand science fiction tradition.
6: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links.
0: That's the
1: forum links at theparacast.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with part two of the Powercast with a newcomer to our show, Daniel Brenton, who is co-author of a book called Red Moon, which is a science fiction novel. Jeff Ritzman, one of our regulars. And, of course, Mac Tonys, who is, I regard, one of the cutting-age thinkers in the UFO field. David, you want to pick up on this?
4: So really, it all boils down to this. Are we limited by our minds? Is this going to always be the problem that faces humanity? We all have, I think everybody on this panel, I'll say, has very good intentions. Though I'm not sure about Ritzman. Um, but we all have good intentions, and I think we're all here for the, for the same reasons. I think. And
1: sometimes I have me doubts
4: about you, my friend. Oh, I have <laughs> doubts about me every second of every day. Even just, here's here's the problem, right? We live in a world where specialization is valued beyond many things. Certainly in any serious scientific field of endeavor, it's the specialists who are turned to for expert opinions. It's the specialists who are seen as having uh, the mechanisms to actually arrive at concrete, pragmatic, useful answers to big problems. What we've moved away from is the idea that the generalist is a valuable person in the team. And in fact, what we find is that certainly as technology becomes more and more complex, that the role of the generalist is coming back in a huge way. And this is something that we're seeing at a lot of different levels, certainly in corporate day-to-day life. The idea of the generalist is one that is... uh, usually regarded as the higher-end manager, the person who is indeed uh, tasked with the goal of keeping the team on focus, the person that uh, has a good idea of what each individual team member does, and their role is to sort of synthesize a methodology for the most efficient deployment of the resources that are at hand. So when we talk about Daniel's idea of creating an organization for oversight and for uh, for trying to push the agenda of serious study, um, serious objective study that, that utilizes things like peer review and uh, peer accepted methods and techniques to evaluate data. We then put out this call for the generalist, but we're in a society where the generalist is either, for the most part, misunderstood. I mean, people think about specialists all the time. Certainly, people who go to college have to choose an area of specialty. But the idea that you want to have a generalist or a generalist approach is one that, for the most part, has been frowned upon. So do we see a potential for turning, turning people around to understand that this idea of the overview is something that's useful, or are we stuck at this point in history on this track of increasing specialization to the point where, and this is something certainly we can put in the context of discussing any aspect of the paranormal, where the UFO people don't want to know anything about what the ghost researchers are doing. The ghost researchers look at the UFO people and think, oh, they're just wacky. And don't even get either of those parties started on the vampire experts because you know they're, they're so out there. And so when we talk about the fourteenth of the Fordian approach, which is indeed one of generalism, is that something that's seen as antiquated? Is there a possibility that we can give a newly revitalized credibility to the idea of the generalists?
3: Well, one of my takeaways from this conversation is going to be to and any further discussion I have on this idea of promoting some kind of group, is that it should be an an umbrella. It should be fourteenth and Part of what I'm thinking is that if people sign on with this thing, they're walking into essentially a contract. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. If I have a problem. I'm going to use this resource. If I'm going to do this kind of research. I'm going to use this methodology. So if you have folks that are part of a group that, from the outset, is looking at a broad spectrum, then I think that's going to affect their approach to it, if nothing else
4: so so here's here's the issue with that daniel if i'm an individual that's looking for answers to understand my life experiences am i going to limit myself in order to become part of a group that proclaims to have the same goals that i do but ultimately may have goals that are slightly different from mine or may have i don't want to say the word agenda but it's really no substitute word for that that may have an agenda that ultimately doesn't mesh with mine and this is where we get back to subjectivity because um, it just occurs to me and this is, I'm just going to throw this out there, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to try to arrive at a better understanding. Look, I'm I'm the kind of person that has never been really, really good at following rules. I'm really, really good at breaking them very often. And I have found that by breaking rules, I've been able to make sometimes, not always, but at times, I've been able to make some huge strides, gaining understanding of the things that interest me. This now, I'm going to bring up an even murkier topic, which is that it's almost like like when you have a group of people, it almost seems like most of the time, what ends up happening is you have the the scourge of the lowest common denominator, where basically the, the efforts of the group are reined in by the least capable member of the group, in order to basically remain part of the effort, everything gets downplayed so that the least capable member of the group feels accommodated. And, and certainly, if you want to look at the world of education, this is uh, something that you can map into any school, whether it's a kindergarten to the highest levels of postgraduate collegiate learning you find a situation where the curve brings everybody down and so now we're talking about an area of study where there are no rules where there is no accepted methods and you're going to have a situation i suspect where people are maybe you know you say a contract for example people say okay i'll sign the contract but if there opens up a possibility for me to leapfrog 10 years of, of searching to get closer to an answer, I'm going to take it, and I'm not going to even bother asking the group what they think about it because I'm a human being. I'm looking for my answer to this. Do, do you think that that's going to potentially throw a monkey wrench into the works? And I'm really sorry for being downer Dave tonight, but I have to admit that you're, I have a certain... You're
3: asking valid questions, questions, Dave. You really are. And I think part of that answer is you want answers personally in hearing the sure. experiences that you've shared. Uh, on the show, I understand why. This stuff has impacted you personally. I mean, I've had experiences that have impacted me personally. It makes me ask the questions, why? Mm-hmm. What is the nature of my existence? Why am I here? Every person should do that. And every person, I think, has the obligation to pursue it the way that makes the most sense to them. And it doesn't matter what some board or, or some scientific research tells them. Right? The hell with that. Now, what the objective, really, of a group that I'm talking about would be to establish some credibility on a particular kind of, you know, in a range, I guess, of subjects, a place where research won't be laughed at, a place where the media can come to and get great answers instead of from some loon. So I don't know if necessarily that group would feed your needs. And, of course, if you want to join a group like that, you have to make a decision, well, all right, this is what I'm going to get out of it. Otherwise, you don't, you don't join. I mean, that said, right. I don't want to try to coerce the whole community into being in some organization. It's laying it out. Do You want to be part of this, but you need to play by these rules. If you're not going to play by these rules, that's fine. You don't have to be part of it. Okay. We've got too much chaos in the UFO community. We've got too many phonies. There's too much crap out there.
4: But but here's the thing, Daniel. I mean, I, and I, I completely agree with that. We definitely have too many phonies, but. You know, there are people out there who think I'm a big phony. There are people out there who think Ritzman's full of crap. No, I'm just saying. I think you know, I'm a phony,
0: this,
4: too. Well, no, seriously. This is something that yeah. um, mm-hmm. we run into all the time. And, and this is a huge problem. This is why, ultimately, uh, yeah, what Jeff said is true. You know, you end, up, you end up trying to create the group effort. You get frustrated. And what ends up happening is that you bounce back to the default position of I want some answers. Maybe not even I want some answers, because that sounds like the scourge of entitlement. No. I'd like to try to gain some understanding of this. Meanwhile, of course, your friends and family are saying, you know what? This is the equivalent of mental masturbation. Pull your hand out of your pants and get back to work. You know, you've got you've got bills to pay. You, you know, the, the landlord doesn't want to know about your quest for understanding your place in the universe. The landlord says hand over the red chump or you're going to find your place in the universe and it's going to be out in front of a Starbucks on the street asking for change so the problem I think in all of this discussion is one of balance and integration and and look, I'm at a point in my life where this is something that I'm I'm dealing with on a daily basis and thank goodness I have a girlfriend a wonderful woman who shares my interest in this topic and understands my, you know uh, I don't want to say the word but I'll say it, obsession and I don't think I'm obsessed with this. I'm actually obsessed with the with, uh, things that make noises. I'm obsessed with weird synthesizers and guitars and things with knobs on them. Little weird pedals that make weird squealing sounds when I plug my very guitar into them. You know, those are the things that I'm really obsessed with. I'm obsessed with music. You know, that said, this topic is grabbed more and more of my time. I'm someone who repressed all of the interest in this until
1: Gene uh, basically talked me into doing the paracast with him. I didn't quite coerce you. I just said, "Hey, let's try this out," and I don't think you hesitated for very much. Well, you remember
4: it one way. I'll choose to remember it my flawed <laughs> way. But you know, um, but ultimately, you know, we're a group of people who have a higher level of interest in this than most of society at large. And and I take comfort in saying this that you know here I am with a group of what I consider to be highly intelligent people, and we're talking about these topics, and you know, none of us are taking this very lightly. Though I, I wonder about Ritzman. Hey, but you know it, it, the problem is one of that that integration and balanced life. And ultimately, if you know you join an organization like this, is this something you're going to put on your business card? Is this something that you're going to be proud of? You're going to you're going to say to your family, "Oh, I'll see you later. I got to go to a meeting of uh, of the Rational UFO Research Society."
2: <laughs> and, and David, David, look at look at it this way. Yeah. Not only are you going to have to have a team of reasonably seasoned researchers working on all sorts of different venues, mm-hmm. you're also going to have to say at some point. How do we present findings? How do we make this palatable? How do we table this thing so that the public in general doesn't think us nutty and at the same time can maybe get their head around what we're into? And the PR person is going to have either a really great time or a hellish nightmare Hmm. trying to figure that out. The perception of the group is going to be everything.
1: I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night when it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, And the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcastingcom slash crane. That's techbroadcastingcom slash crane to order the CC Radio Plus for one sixty four ninety five, and that includes free ground shipping and a free Crane catalog. Place your order today.
4: You're in the podcast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Our guests tonight include Jeff Ritzman. He gets his turn first. Daniel Brenton and Mac Tonies. So the question arises, Jeff, yeah. how do you pick a spokesperson? Because this is the person well, the press goes to, the UFO expert. You know, yeah. I mean, we know there are certain people they go to right now. And sometimes it's the craziest person. Sometimes it's... Well the old time UFO researchers. Listen, if Fox puts on David Sarita
4: one more time, <laughs> I'm gonna hunt down Rupert Murdoch and I'm gonna put live ferrets in his eye socket. All right, and I'm going on record saying that here right now. Murdoch, if you put if you let your henchman put that wacko Sarita on one more time, I'm gonna bring ferrets that have been starved in cages for three weeks with little pieces of meat and carrot hung in front of them, taunting them. And I'm going to sick them on your eye sockets. That's, I just had to say that. I'll shut up. Please send emails to David Biedney at the Paracan. I, I notice how Mac has gotten really quiet. <laughs>
2: Mac is like, Mac, are you still there? Carrot owner. no. I like your idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know who the spokesperson should be i mean i personally, I don't think it should be anyone anyone knows <laughs> you
1: know it certainly shouldn't it be should me. Be. It should not be David
2: no I mean well, maybe Danville it should be, not David. be me you know? I mean no, that's all it, we need It's just gonna have to be someone that uh that knows how to speak and knows how to present information clearly, you know presenting findings that's the whole reason behind the group. you know you do one case study and 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 present that to A small group and see what their take is I mean the way this group is perceived is going to be the reason either people want to or don't want to join it and become involved in it I mean that's that's a a critical PR is a critical thing you know and as far as any brand name I don't think any branded researcher out there ought to be speaking for this group I think it should be someone no one knows because that that sees that the public will see that person more or less vanilla on the whole subject you know, and they won't think that. Well, who is this guy? Oh, well, he's the one that came up with the whole. You know, they're from Planet X, and you know, the this, that, and the other. We don't need that. We we don't need any preconceived notion in public view about this group, because there really is no preconceived view, or shouldn't be one, about the findings that you're going after. That was the other problem that you were talking about, as far as getting people. Who would you get to to be involved? The the freedom that there would be in this group would be that there really is no wrong answer. The problem will come in is when you find some critical piece of information. Wow, look at this. We did this little study, and look what we got. Is this bizarre? There's your problem. Well, okay, but, but we can't well, let that out. Are you crazy? Oh, but well, look at look at what NARCAP
4: did with the O'Hare incident.
2: Look at right? what they, NARCAP does as a whole. They stay out of ufology. Well, sure. They are not abs- abs- in it.
4: Absolutely not. They have learned the hard way, and they're smart. They they stay away from the dangerous terminology. So right. here they, they spend the time and the effort to put together a comprehensive report on what happened last November, mm-hmm. and they release this report to a deadening thud. Mm-hmm. No one, not any major news source at all, touched that report and followed up on the uh, reporting that had happened with the Chicago Tribune earlier in the year, no one you didn't see a mention of that anywhere, not even in the press conference that uh, Symington and James Fox did. I mean that never came up. It was an extensively researched document, and it didn 't draw definitive conclusions. I mean basically it said some unknown aerial phenomena right. was seen over the over O'Hare airport, and uh, there should be a concern in terms of aviation security and and of course that's the stance they take and it makes a lot of sense because they're basically presenting this in terms of what are the pragmatic impacts of this phenomenon on day-to-day life and so they chose to to focus on and again I, i agree jeff i think very intelligently um... the impact the potential impact on aviation security so if what i'm suggesting is that if you want to create an organization that's got some chance of being noticed what you have to do is frame in terms of the result. What, what does the result provide? I mean, you know, you wanna get funding? Here, I'll tell you how to get funding. Create an organization that puts forward as its goal, using its resources to prove the existence of God. That'll get you lots of funding. Why? Because people choose the God brand, choose God, TM, Uh, They choose the God brand and follow the
1: money. Boy, it's the most successful brand in the history of the species. Well, maybe you can certainly frame paranormal research in that framework because you could say, well, we're seeking God and the creatures and his servants or whatever, and these are part of god's kingdom and therefore we need to understand them so i guess it's related in some crazy way but you lose all the scientists on that
4: (laughs) well i mean this is the problem we we live in a fragmented society i was going to say before that as far as a spokesperson i would shoot for someone who uh, is visually very presentable who's uh, got a calm collected approach to the way he speaks who uh, is an excellent writer and, and a master of written communications and who has an in-depth understanding and interest in the topic. So I, sh- I vote for Matt Tony's.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I second. You're
5: in. Well, it's better It's better than uh, Seth Shostak, I suppose. <laughs>
4: that means you're not going to call Corf up and get him on the air. I mean, oh. Yeah. Oh,
0: no, oh, you no, said no. the K
4: word. Shh. I went and did it. Oh, darn. Oh, 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 the okay. secret warrior. Been invoked in the Paracast yet again. No, but seriously, the the problem, of course, of finding the person to represent such an effort is that that person most likely is going to be someone who wants to be uh, paid really well because really good marketing people and PR people make really, really good bling. There's no bling in this. You know, Mac, you brought up previously Joe Formage who started what he did, I think, again, with the right intentions, but just went over the edge and yeah. and, and got discredited just like... Someone else who was brought up on the Paracast forums, someone was asking who is Ray Kurzweil, and um, I've known about Kurzweil for a long time as a synthesis Of course, I've always been interested in Kurzweil from the point of view of his contributions to, uh, to synthesizer technology. But sure. um, you know, anybody who delves into studying Kurzweil then finds out that yeah, you know, some of the claims in his books are one step shy, I think, of lunacy. And and again, the guy is 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 a respected scientist in many ways, and a scientist who's who's taken his research and put it to use in a pragmatic way. But it's almost as if you you get these people who are incredibly intelligent, and that fine line between intelligence and insanity rears its ugly head. And next thing you
3: know,
5: reminds me of there is a kind of a flake factor at work. Unfortunately, he reminds me a lot of the guy who wrote the physics of immortality. And then, uh, Barrow, Frank Barrow, again, this is an accomplished, uh, astrophysicist. And, you know, he was no, no, uh, outsider. He also written, he's written a follow up called The Physics of Christianity. And, you know, basically his, his arguments make a sort of elliptical, sense but it requires so many ifs that it's just uh you know it's it's not you, know, you mentioned mental masturbation this has to be mental masturbation at its finest kind of a messianic quality you get to to kurzweil's new stuff that i don't uh i don't quite get into it doesn't mean his ideas are
4: invalid but as a spokesman i'm not sure he's who i'd pick well no I, the kurzweil's got the deeper skeleton in this closet which is the do you know about ramona yeah i do
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's like made, I don't you know. begrudge him. I understand where he's coming from. You know, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. using Ramona as an illustration of hey, you know, this is how cool this technology is. You don't even have to be you if you don't want to. Yeah, it's a good application. But, but so you explaining for those of us who don't know
1: what you're talking about. What do you mean here by Ramona? Oh,
5: Ramona is his uh, self-proclaimed uh, computer-generated alter ego. Okay, but he's made some comments about. Uh, I don't want to slander him, but I read in an interview something about—I uh, I don't know—just some of the it sounds vaguely incestuous. His fascination with this Ramona character, and and the sad thing is, Ramona is not very impressive if, if you look at the animations online and stuff. If you try to chat with her, you know she sounds just like any of the other little chat bots. You know, I, 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 he's presenting Ramona as a as a proof of. Um, Kind of concept, you know. Here we you know, we can get it, we can get a humanoid-looking piece of code and make it interact on, on a
1: human level, and, and that's well, great. But Ramona's journey. not there yet. Okay, well I'll certainly look forward to Ramona.
7: That's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Red, 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 Paul Levinson, the award winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. Red, 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 By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-15.
1: Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? Its reliability and speed speaks for itself, and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can.
6: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You
1: never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Ramona's not here, but you know who is here? I don't think so. No, Mac Tonys, Jeff Ritzman, usually. Daniel Brenton, first time. So as a first-timer, as a virgin visitor to the Paracast, what do you think so far, Daniel?
3: Not a virgin anymore. <laughs> Actually, I'm having a great time. Well, that's good. Enjoying.
4: Enjoying. I was going to say, I hear the sounds oh. of cherries popping, but
3: <laughs> oh, I knew it was coming. Oh, sorry. Can that's I edit just... that one out, I think? Yeah?
1: Yeah, no, no, it doesn't get edited out. This is going to stick <laughs> with the final version for the rest of time. <laughs> you,
3: you don't have those. David
1: say that. No, yeah, no, no, I'm
4: sorry. Well,
3: we've, been, we've been talking about spokespeople for, for this thing. For and sure. Obviously, it's going to have to draw from the people who join this thing. Uh, I mean, gee, Dave, the reason you're doing this show is because you feel compelled to do so. You feel it's important. This isn't a matter of getting money for it. You are committed to it inside. It means something to you. That's the kind of people that would be joining an organization like this, is, okay, I feel enough about this that I want to do something, I want to contribute, and I'm willing to do it within this criteria because it's important. You get a bunch of intelligent people in a group. Some people are going to have certain talents that are going to express themselves. And... So, you know, you you work with whatever the strengths are in that that group.
4: But it almost makes sense to have someone, I think, from outside the group, someone who can claim the role of, uh, I don't want to say true objectivity, but maybe plausible deniability is more appropriate. Uh You know, someone who, well, it has to be someone ultimately who is media friendly. And that
1: makes uh, the Paracast guys, well, you know, not, not real viable. Right, Gene? Absolutely not. I would never volunteer for such a position. I would think you might do it, but then there would be no level of control. You might go off and do something, where suddenly your voice will change in the middle of a phrase. I'm a, yeah, no, forget it. I'm, I'm pretty much a loose cannon. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to say that. You know, I, I wanted you to maybe say yeah, that. Yeah.
4: Well, here's the thing. So now you, you, you go with this group, and you come up with some coherent ideas and theories, and where does it go from there? So now you have some thoughts about, for example, what are the two or three most viable explanations for the sourcing of UFOs? And let's remember that the most likely reality here is that there is more than one sourcing. Maybe we're talking about a combination of things. Maybe we're talking about creatures from another planet, along with Creatures from an alternate dimension, coexisting with ours in the same essential space, but with a, maybe a time offset. And we're talking about uh, creatures that established themselves on this planet millions of years ago and have been using the Earth as a huge genetics laboratory, but have been here so long that have essentially they've essentially been assimilated into the Earth's ecosystem, and now they are max crypto-terrestrials. And so now we've got all of these things going on at once. Does this mean that there is even the potential of creating a unified field theory for this, or is that unrealistic?
5: Well, who necessarily needs a unified field theory? It has a sexy ring to it, and uh, sure, certainly in the case of in the case of particle physics and string theory, that's useful. Mm-hmm. But you know, basically, if, if you're dealing with, as you said. Creatures. I mean, we have zoology, but we don't have zoologists fighting it over to develop a unified field theory. Well, we do in the sense that they're trying to trace ancestral lines and and things right. like that. But they're not trying to find a single point of origin, like uh, proving that a giraffe is the same thing as a as a monkey or something like that. There's a book that actually comes to mind, that's been springing to mind during this conversation about who you present as the public voice for an effort like this. And I keep thinking of, uh, there's a really, really good book that I'd recommend to any Fortian, even though it's not a Fortian book, and it's science fiction. It's called Blindsight by Peter Watts, a really accomplished Canadian science fiction writer. And um, the gist of Blindsight is that they discover some Sort of alien intelligence on the outskirts of the solar system, and they send a mission of, of extremely strange people to investigate. They pick people who are arguably more alien than what they've been sent to discover, but they send along along with these misfits uh, you know they basically you know cyborgs some of them have our artificial uh, personalities in their in their own sharing the headspace with with one core personality. Uh, some very, very disturbing uh, variations and things like that. But they send along with these people uh, someone called a synthesis. And basically the guy is kind of the uh, postmodern storyteller. And he's the guy that the people back on Earth count on for an objective take on what's going on. Because he's drawing on all these different disciplines in almost a, in almost a, kind of a techno-shamanic uh, way. In fact, his brain has been surgically altered, and that's what allows him to to do this. So it comes back up to uh, you know maybe our minds not aren't fit, aren't adequate enough to process strange information. Well, in this case, uh, Watts' suggestion is that maybe our brains aren't aren't uh, fit for the task, maybe that we need to be augmented or or. Uh, Rewired to a certain degree. It's a good book, and uh, I would recommend it because it deals with some really thorny philosophical issues pertaining
1: to the idea of, of extraterrestrial intelligence or non-human intelligence. Daniel, I think this calls on some responses from you, especially since you're a science fiction writer. Oh,
3: thank you. I guess I have to keep coming back to, if, if we're coming back to spokesman, what do we want to achieve with a uh, spokesman? Obviously, we want to be able to react. Say, say, if we had an organization like this prior to the O'Hare thing. Now, well, maybe the O'Hare thing isn't the best example, but something that. Well, I, okay. Say, all right. I'm going to name him. Say, say, uh, say before the the first disclosure thing back in uh, what 2000, 2001, whenever it was. And if we had a group that said, well, this, you know, this particular case is compelling, and this one is like, well, we don't think this particular person is credible, and that sort of thing. That was the role I was seeing for the various media contacts or contact. I I really wasn't thinking in terms of trying to create outreach, though obviously that would be part of it eventually. People would be attracted to this because they're interested in it. I don't think it'd be a matter of of trying to promote or trying to uh, proselytize.
4: Well, but... You're describing something, Daniel, that's reactive instead of proactive, and
3: um, well, reactive to the external environment. Sure, so it would be proactive in the sense of it's it's uh, cultivating or trying to cultivate research within its its constraints, be creating a body of research. I would I would hope anyway a body of research that would hold up to people who are being objective about scientific method, and you know, rather than just scoffing at it because it's about all that crazy stuff. But you you raise a good point, and frankly, I haven't thought out of that kind of thing.
4: Well, well, here's the problem. In the world of marketing, the only way to market is by proactivity. That's why you have focus groups. You, the only way to understand what your market wants is to ask them. Anybody who ever studies the art of sales learns that what, what salesmanship is really about is answering objections. The idea being that if you have somebody who you consider to be a potential customer, what you do is you... You find out what their needs are, and then you present options to them, and they basically counter with objections. And if you can essentially answer or address all of their objections, that at that point, if you've done that, you've essentially made the sale. And I don't want to put this in sort of gross materialistic terms, but what you're doing is you're, you're taking your position and your agenda, and there is an agenda, and there is a position, and and if you try to say, well, there isn't, I would say, well, any scientific organization has an agenda and it has a position in what it's studying. That's just the, the nature of the beast here. So you have an agenda, you have a position, and now what you have to do is you have to sell those to the public. Because otherwise, what function does the organization really fulfill? Again, I think it's fine that you've, you've come up with this idea and you're putting it out on the Paracast for people to listen to and to evaluate, but like any situation where you want to get something useful happening, it has to go through a process of elimination and a process of consideration. And essentially what we're doing here is we're playing the focus group game. And uh, and I, I've I've been part of a variety of focus groups, usually on the other side of the mirror, on the side taking notes in the software industry. And you'd be shocked at some of the techniques that are used to evaluate what are the needs of the market and how are those needs met. And um, essentially what you're doing here is, is is sort of the same thing in terms of trying to get some ideas and a position with regards to the paranormal, or specifically with regards to the understanding of UFOs, You're putting that position out there and you're trying to persuade people that it is valid. Because ultimately, the only way that the news organizations are going to come to you and ask you for your opinion about a specific incident is if they feel that you are capable of answering in a way that, well, at the most base level, meets the condition of concision. Which is that if you're going to go on television and you're going to talk about something. You have to be concise because television is a concise medium. And if you're going to take 25 minutes to explain a position, they're not going to turn to you. And this is I'm not saying this is a good thing, by the way. I think this is a very sad side effect of people's conditioning as far as the consumption of media. And I'm a bit of a, of a closet media scientist. So this is something that really deeply interests me and has always interested me because I like to make media. And so you know the consideration of what goes into the making and the formulation of media is something that, that has always just fascinated me on a personal level. But, but when you come to that understanding, you realize that in order to be taken seriously, there is a certain tone you have to adopt and the fact that concision is critical. So one of the things that I would suggest to you is that if you're going to seriously pursue the creation of this kind of an organization that you would be able to sum up what the goals of the organization are on a single PowerPoint slide. And we're not talking about lines and lines and lines of copy.
1: We're talking about four or five bullet points that lay right out.
3: Oh, yeah, what do you be high level. What? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Basically, you have to have something that fills a 30-second soundbite. If they want the 30-second soundbite for their particular show, they've got to be able to come to this particular person who is number one, media savvy, number two, presentable, able to answer even the deepest questions within those 30 seconds because that's the way the mindset is. And here's the paradox, and and this is something
4: that Jeff and I have spoken about on the show before, which is that when it comes to discussing, let's just talk about UFOs, just UFOs, where at a MUFON meeting I went to, I started talking about an issue and someone in this group of people said to me, Can you give us the Reader's Digest version? And I looked at him and I said, no, there is no such thing as the Reader's Digest version of this. This is a highly complex thing. This might be one of the most complex things we've ever picked up and looked at. As a highly complex thing, to try to come up with a concise explanation that is in any way useful or descriptive is just impossible. It's not possible. And so that's the dilemma you're facing here. And and it's a daunting, daunting task. And I think that uh, Mac Toney's is the one really best suited for coming up with that concise description.
1: <laughs>
2: if you say so. You see, he said it in four words. <laughs> if you say so. There's a sound like
3: Well, if I can lunge in there for a second, David, you're absolutely correct that there has to be a way of establishing credibility with the press. And what you're describing sounds like something that, frankly, I haven't thought of. But that would be one of the objectives is to become that point source for for the media to come to. And how do you do that? So there you are.
5: Mm. Yeah, it's tough. Well, somebody needs to... Push Shostak out of the way. I am tired of Shostak. He is the media's point source right now, yeah. uh, for not just not just SETI but UFOs. Yeah, to a large degree, and I, that's a, that's a, a journalistic travesty. I don't even think he's an articulate spokesman for
4: SETI, let alone anything else. So I think it's my opinion, but you're absolutely right, Mac. And, and what you said before was was uh, I think really a big part of the answer. One has to take advantage of the internet and create a clearinghouse, in in the old Web Web 1.0 terminology, a portal, a central place where people are going to turn to first and foremost to seek information about this topic. And what that tells us is that we need, before anything else, to find someone with very deep pockets. (laughs)
1: Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 2730 or visit FATE's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our
4: listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at That's news at And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we
3: will too. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publication for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre, sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at UFO at WebTV dot net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications, but we do need your actual address because these are physical publications and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, mr ufo at webtv dot net.
7: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition.
0: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: We need to deepen our pockets by telling you you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biadney. We're talking to McToney's Jeff Ritzman, Daniel Brenton, looking for a solution to the problem in getting responsible paranormal research done and reporting it to the public. Okay, before we get back with our guests this evening, here's the deal. We need your help. We need your help because obviously we're trying to sell the PowerCast to potential sponsors. And the sponsors want to know who's listening to us. So what we've done is set up an audience survey. Let's call it a listener survey. It's on our homepage at thepowercast.com. That's thepowercast.com. If you click start now, the survey will take you five or 10 minutes. So all we need is five or 10 minutes of your time. You don't have to give out your personal information. You don't have to sign up for mailing lists. None of that stuff we just want you to help us out so we know who's listening to the PowerCast. Let's get back to our show. Daniel, before we started the episode, I know you had some feelings about going into this. So far, as we progress to the final 17, 18 minutes of the show, what do you think you've learned in putting this proposal together, maybe the things that you think might need improvement?
3: Well, obviously, it's going to take the engagement of a number of people that of a bunch of different disciplines, I don't have all the answers. I see, I mean, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I see that there are resources within the community that I could draw on. I had no idea, if David, for instance, was interested in marketing and such to that degree. So, yeah, this is a resource I'm talking to right now. I do think Jeremy Vaney is a resource because he's had at least some success with putting together events. I do have a few inquiries out to some people to see what they think of all this. One thing I was thinking of asking a little bit ago was, well, yes, what is the next step? So it was a little bit it may seem a little bit odd that I would be asking that question, but I did want to approach this as a discussion. The next step, obviously, is we have to solidify this somehow. We have to have some kind of agreement from these credible individuals within the organization, not the organization, within the community, and yet I'll use that term, the UFO community or paranormal community, the 14 community, whatever you want to call it, say, yes, I buy into that. Let's do that. Uh, And moving forward towards something, because obviously the threat is going to have to run very uh, far. It's going to have to really substantial spine to this in order for it to continue for an indefinite period. So obviously this is going to take some thought. I would invite anybody who has suggestions or thoughts on that, send them to Mm us.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Do you have an email address that people can contact you at that you'd want to give out, or would you rather just have us collect? Oh, that would be fine. I would
3: comments at danielbrenton.com. dot com.
1: Comments at danielbrenton dot com. Yeah. Okay, Jeff. Yes, sir. What can you say about all this so far?
2: What a mess, huh? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is. It's it's a huge undertaking, and it's it's got a lot of uh, of tripping points in it, but. I mean, I mean, you got to commend Daniel for taking the initiative to actually put some serious, hardcore thought. I mean, me and Dave have talked about this for a long time, and I think, uh, and, and I'll admit, you know, again, I'll admit another mistake here is that, you know, I think in some small part that me and Dave actually thought we could do something to, to turn a tide in some direction or to get something started. And changing the way people think. And I think to like this minuscule amount, we have kind of like made people look in different directions that maybe they hadn't before, you know, or at least I get a lot of emails to that effect, which is great. But to do it as a whole is going to take this mammoth undertaking to to get the right group of people, to get the right spokesperson to raise the right funds that you actually have. I mean, and I, I haven't brought this up, but this is another point that, to really make something like this really successful, that you're going to have to have full-time employed people uh, mm-hmm. to do this. I don't think this can be done as a volunteer organization.
3: I can just jump in there, Jeff. There, sure. there is an orgy- Well, it didn't start this way, admittedly. Uh, I mean, it isn't this way now, but it started this way. The, the Toastmasters International Organization, yeah. they started as an all-volunteer organization, and now there's several hundred thousand, I believe, worldwide. Right. Uh, there, are, there is a core group of people in uh, Southern California that yeah. are actually are staff. There is such a thing, but it didn't start that way.
2: One of the things I, I was talking to my wife about the other night was uh, I've seen a lot. I mean, you talk about seeing a lot of Shostak on TV, Mac. Who else I've seen a lot of been lately here has been uh, Joe Nickel. <laughs> Mm. And for Between him and uh, Magaha, I think they're two of the worst debunkers on the planet. I mean, they suck at what they do. By the way, my email is jeff.ritzman at gmail.com. It's one of those things where you're talking about the center. Uh, what is it? The This study of inquiry? Well, it, uh, they
5: changed it from uh, Center for Scientific Investigations of to claims of the Paranormal Committee or whatever. I don't know. Right. But now it's just CSI. But they look uh, to be. I like,
2: like the TV a,
3: show. Right, exactly. All right.
2: They look to be like they're professionally funded. I mean, at least from what what I perceive on on TV, it seems like this is their full time gig, and mm-hmm. to that end, I would say. Who is funding them in that respect? Who are those people out there throwing money at people to debunk these things and debunk them not even very well? I think that we have to have people on our side of things who are just not set on one area or the other, but just have a genuine curiosity for this. That's going to be the real Sticking point is I don't want to believe anything. You know, Believe me, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, Jeff, nothing really happened to you. It was all in your head. Or this is not a product of you. It's not about you. It's about different circumstances. And what you, your wife, and all your friends saw at the time, this was all going on with you. It really had more to do with X. And it had nothing to do with anything so horrible. It's all perfectly natural. I would be the most relieved guy on the planet. (laughs) But... I don't have that. And to to sit here and, you know, I mean, I've been on this show how many times now? I mean, I have to think writing the book that I'm writing right now is, is kind of a fuel effort because I've, I've pretty much told a lot of stuff. But you're going to have to have people who don't want to believe and don't want to disbelieve. you got to have that fine line or, again, the agendas are going to take over, The egos are going to take error. The I'm right, you're wrong. And the whole thing's just going to wind up in another big mess. Would you have to um, go,
1: Jeff Mack? Daniel, David, after somebody with huge amounts of financial reserves, I mean, like a Warren Buffett or a Paul Allen mm-hmm. or a Bill Gates, somebody who has billions to spend, who could, if they were interested in the potential of this kind of research, say, here's 500 million, have a good time.
2: And we also no, this have isn't to sign a-, a paper with those people that we're not going to lose our freaking minds 10 years in, <laughs> you know, I mean... Yeah. You know, we've all talked about this. That people seem to go insane with this stuff, and yeah. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't blame any millionaire out there for saying, "Sorry, guys. You know, I backed so and so, and look what he's done." I mean, you've got that whole thing that's going on. I mean, that's and to me, that's a very interesting part of the whole phenomenon, actually you know, is, is why this kind of thing happens. So, I mean, it, it would be great to have full-time people. I think you have to have that. Do
1: you also have to have, as a spokesperson, somebody who is already known in the media rather than a stranger because you want somebody who knows how the game works? It certainly helps.
4: I mean, it, you. Th- this is the name of the game right now. Look at the mileage that Shirley MacLaine has gotten out of her recent media appearances, and she's already in a position where she is perceived in a certain way. Uh, Her book, Out on a Limb, um, and the books that followed that basically established her as a New Ager. And if you go to her website, what do you find? You find a lot of New Age stuff. You find that her webmaster and the CEO of her website He's one of the people who promoted the Swiss farmer nonsense in the United States. And you find that apparently she gave money to the Swiss farmer and seems to believe in him and it. And this is someone who appears regularly on CNN. <laughs> she, she's she been the face of ufology for the mass media for the past few months this is the level we're dealing with, I mean, and you know she's a well known person, and I think the reason that she gets on television obviously is because of her stardom, so the problem is you know how do you go find that person who already enjoys a level of media visibility and credibility because here's here's one of the things you have to consider
1: as far as the mass media is concerned. Visibility is credibility. Well, Shirley MacLaine, they just, I think, accept her as being a wacky old lady. I saw her being interviewed by, forgive the expression, Bill O'Reilly. And he treated her with kid gloves, softball questions. He was afraid to upset her, just asked her routine questions, and she did her spiel, and then she got off. Hmm. So, you know, she's not going to be subjected to that kind of criticism. Maybe they think because she's so old she'll die of a heart attack on TV or something. I don't know. But
2: maybe she's just a celebrity a or
1: she's just a lovable eccentric. Let's put it that way. She's a lovable eccentric. Why do you want to be nasty to Shirley MacLaine? She's a nice old lady. All right, so she believes in new age stuff and she's wacky and she believes in things that are ridiculous. So what? Let her have a good time. There she is, fine, next guest. All right, let's go get Phyllis Diller. Let's go. She's available. Oh, that's it. What? <laughs> Kathy Lee Gifford. Okay. Huh? I can <laughs> almost see that. I don't know. She's kind of history, though. Does she do anything anymore? No, that's the point.
0: <laughs> She'll so
1: jump new, at it. A new career. For Executive Gold, thinking,
4: Ritzman. Executive
1: thinking.
2: Gold, Jerry. Gold. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh God! I don't know. I you know. So you have to find the person who has media visibility, who has a desire to jump into this sandbox, and I do say sandbox with all of the things that that does imply. Uh, it's a daunting task. George I, Clooney.
2: I mean, I hate to say this, but there was well, a, there was there was talk a long time ago about about who should present disclosure. I don't know if any of you guys remember hearing about this, but apparently. I'm trying to remember the story exactly. I can't, so forgive me. But
4: who's the name that the, came up?
2: Some to the idea of like who should present disclosure. How would it best be received by the public as to not be this panicked, overridden nightmare? Hmm. And uh, from what I remember, I think the outcome of that study was that Walt Disney should actually do it, that they should actually be the ones to present this, you know? Oh.
1: Steve um, Jobs. He has a reality yeah. distortion field. If he gets up there, they'll believe anything.
4: Yeah, I mean, no, 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 no. What he does is he gets some in front of the audience and he goes, free iPods for everyone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he says,
4: free video iPods. None of those shuffles. The real thing. Do you remember what study this was? I was just thinking,
2: if it was I Walt don't. Disney, and he'd still be alive, so... Well, no, I, I'm talking the, the Walt Disney Company would be used. They would be Oh, you know, Oh, oh I, thought be I, cool. I thought you meant Walt Disney himself.
5: And I was no, as, well, as
2: in the Walt Disney yeah. Company, I'm sorry. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Well, of course, you have anybody I mean, within the ABC
1: organization, you know, Barbara Walters or somebody. I don't know.
2: I mean, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm sitting go. here trying to think, like, who does everybody really like? And, and Charles Gibson, and the newsman,
1: in, but then he'd have no credibility, whatever, if he got into this. But I, I think, think he's their top guy right now. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's, uh, you know, ex-news people. I mean...
1: We are not going to solve this here tonight,
4: that's for sure. The (laughs) question of the spokesperson is not going to be solved. I'll tell you this, make it an attractive female and you might have something. Yeah. Um, And and if you don't believe me, go to your local drugstore and go to the magazine rack, and what you'll notice is something that has been true in the magazine industry forever, which is that the primary thing that sells magazines... Regardless of what the magazine is about, the magazine could be about uh, uh, chicken livers. The magazine could be about cars or business or guns or food. Take your pick. The thing that sells magazines are attractive women on the cover. And my former boss, Felix Dennis, has made a massive fortune out of this one rule of publishing put Attractive women on the cover of magazines, and those magazines can be about whatever topic you want. They can be
1: about irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> People <laughs> will buy them. Or even give you irritable bowel syndrome if you read them. And I'm ta- this is, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll say this if you're going to find a spokesperson, you're
4: best off finding an attractive spokeswoman. And, has and
2: Selma Hayek's number. That's the one.
6: Well,
4: now, you're laughing, but Gene will remember, um, and Gene, you're going you're gonna to f- supply the name. Oh, no, I don't need you to supply the name. The infamous Kiki Stockhammer from uh, New Tech, from the video toaster, that woman sold more video toasters than the technology was able to ever sell for that product. It was all about Kiki, and and that's the deal. And, and I hate it. It sounds terrible, and I know this sounds sexist, and you know, be it what it is, this is the this is the deal with marketing. And what we're talking about here is a marketing endeavor. So you know, for for get males, you want to look for the attractive, intelligent, presentable female that is your spokesperson, and that's the way you have to go. Which means, unfortunately, Mac, you're out of the running.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: well, it, it the question it is somewhat of so, <laughs> a relief.
2: Are they actually listening to the information, or are they just looking at her? Doesn't
1: really matter.
0: <laughs> You're right.
1: I go for that. No, I was about to say that a couple of times, and I said, no, they're going to shoot me down. And now David is in my camp. I agree with David. has to be an attractive woman. But you know what? We don't have any more time to talk about it. So I really want to thank Daniel Brenton. He is the co-author of Red Moon. And he has a website that we'd link to at com. So you can check that out. Also check the ads for the book. It's an interesting book, which I'm going to get around to reading, honestly, because I love science fiction. Jeff Ritzman, who may or may not be writing a book. Yeah, I definitely am. I'm on chapter nine. Okay, so So. number nine. Number nine. I have no end in sight yet, though. (laughs) Mac Tonys, who is also writing a book. That is true. And David Biedney is not writing a book, nor am I. I've written enough books. No more books. But until next week. don't know if I'm writing a book or not. You don't know that. Hey, I don't. So maybe we'll answer that question next week or on a future week on the
0: Powercast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Pietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.